So our scripture reading for this week is going to be in Matthew chapter 8. Please stand for the, the reading of that. It'll be Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, going into the city. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Well, good morning once again. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to that passage in Matthew as we will continue in that together this morning as we walk through it. And it's an interesting passage in having to do with demons and demon possession. I don't know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, but in the preface to that, the author provides this insight regarding demons. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. He writes, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Well, we are going to endeavor to avoid both of those errors this morning as we examine this passage in which Christ delivers two individuals from demon possessions. That is, they were possessed or indwelled by evil spirits, otherwise known as demons or Satan's angels. And that's a pretty dramatic thing to think about. It's something that likely conjures up ideas that are informed more by Hollywood than they are by Scripture. And so I think it would be helpful for us to begin with a bit of a definition of what it means to be possessed, what it means for a person to be demon-possessed. Well, I found this definition from Craig Blomberg, who's a New Testament scholar, to be helpful. He says, demonization, or demon possession, involves the indwelling of unseen evil spirits in a way that prevents an individual from fully controlling his or her own actions. And we see this play out in various ways and to varying degrees throughout the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. There's the man who was unable to speak in Matthew 9 because of a demon. He was mute. There was one who was both mute and blind, because of possession in Matthew 12, which 
Christ releases him from. There's the demon-possessed boy in Matthew 17 who he suffered from seizures as a result of his possession. And the father told Jesus that he would throw himself into the fire and into the water, and he was in great danger. In in the book of Acts, there is the the fortune teller woman, the demon-possessed woman who, who seeks to tell the future that follows after Paul and his companions. We see, of course, this instance here in Matthew chapter 8, where the control of the person was so overshadowed that they even exhibited superhuman strength, as we'll see as we walk through our passage and bring in the parallel passages from the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. So as we look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, we'll consider the confrontation, the confrontation that takes place between Jesus and these men. Secondly, the eviction, as Christ evicts these evil spirits from the person, from the people that they are indwelling. And thirdly, we'll examine the reaction to this miraculous event. So first, let's consider the confrontation, looking at verses 28 and 29. I'll read those again for us. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Our passage starts that when he uh, came to the other side, of course, you'll remember the last time we were in Matthew's gospel together, we saw that Jesus and his disciples had gotten into a boat and gone to the other side of the sea of Galilee, encountering a storm along the way, which Jesus miraculously calmed. Well, they've now arrived at their destination on the eastern shore, the area of the Gadarenes. Or, if you are in Luke and Mark's gospel, the the Gerasenes. Or, if you are looking at some translations, the, the Gergesenes. Well, what exactly is going on here? Well, I assure you there's nothing to be concerned about. The gospel writers did not make mistakes. These are all cities of what is known as the Decapolis, a group of 10 cities on the eastern shore, or I'm sorry, the eastern frontier, rather, of the Roman Empire. So while Gadara was the city that was nearest the shore, Gerasa was more prominent than the two cities. So imagine if you were telling the story of, of getting a flat tire near St. Paul, but sometimes you let people who are from the area know that you were near St. Paul, and others from out of state perhaps, you let them know that this happened near Minneapolis. You're not changing the story. The facts are still true, but you are emphasizing the more prominent of the two cities. Well, as soon as they arrive on the shore near these cities, the showdown between Christ and the demon-possessed men takes place. Mark tells us that this took place immediately when Christ had stepped out of the boat. So you can picture, literally, Jesus and his disciples have, have gotten onto the shore of the sea, and Jesus has just now had his feet hit the sand when this happens. 
And in fact, Mark provides the detail that when Jesus was still a ways off, he was still seen from afar, the demon-possessed men ran to meet him. In fact, Mark really only mentions the demon-possessed man, as does Luke. Well, the fact that Matthew tells of two demon-possessed men, and Mark and Luke speak of only one, is certainly not a contradiction. Whenever there is two, there is one. And Mark and Luke do not say that there was only and exclusively one demon-possessed man. They only say that there was one, and Matthew provides further details and let us know that there is two men. That actually happens several times. When, when Jesus heals some blind men, other gospels mention one man, whereas Matthew mentions two, perhaps emphasizing the more prominent of the two or the only one who spoke in that exchange. But in either case, we see, by looking at these gospels in their entirety, we see more and more details filled out about what takes place. And we see that these two men come running up to Jesus. They see him in the boat. They see him coming to their side. And they run up to meet him. And their situation is extreme. We read in Matthew 8, 28 that they came out of the tombs. They're no longer living among polite society. They have been relegated to live among the dead. And they're so fierce that no one could pass that way. Referencing just one of these men, Mark adds that he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. And yet these fierce men from whom all other people flee, they run up to Jesus as soon as they see him coming. And more than that, we read in Mark and Luke's gospel that they fell down before him. Literally, they prostrated themselves before Jesus. And this is an early indication of what will be made even more plain regarding the demon's own understanding of who Jesus is and where they fall in the hierarchy of spiritual beings. So let's look at verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Well, what have you to do with us? You'll see this several times in the New Testament. This is a Hebrew idiom. It's a phrase that suggests that there's no common ground between the two parties. Something along the lines of mind your own business or what are you doing here might get across in our own language what is being said by the demons. But this phrase is not nearly so interesting as how they address Christ. O Son of God. Think of how remarkable that is. How did the last passage end after Jesus calmed the storm and they went from being afraid of the storm to being afraid from understanding that God himself was in the boat and these men, his disciples, marveled and asked themselves saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds 
and the sea obey him. They ask, what sort of man or what manner of man is this? And here we have the answer, no less from the mouths of demons. O son of God. And that is quite remarkable. They know exactly who Christ is and they understand their ultimate fate. They don't know necessarily the exact day or the hour, but they know that they will eventually be cast into hell into torment by Christ's victory over Satan. So they recognize that they are headed for defeat. Their only concern, their only surprise is that that has arrived so early. And so they ask Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? For any time that they confront a holy and living God is torment to demons. Any time that they are restrained from tormenting others is torment to them. Certainly they will be cast in a lake of fire where it is reserved for Satan and his angels for all eternity. But the fact that the demons know who Jesus is and they know what is eventually going to be their own fate is a good reminder that it is not knowledge of Christ that saves us. It is faith in Christ. As A.W. Tozer put it, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. And James, tell us, James tells us that even the demons believe and they shudder. And shudder indeed. This is why they have prostrated themselves on the ground before him, and they, they clearly identify him as the Son of God. They recognize him to be God's Messiah. As we look at the other Gospels, we learn that there is, there is more still to this initial interaction. Mark 5, 9, Jesus asked, what is your name? He replied, Legion, for we are many. Legion. A legion is a large military unit. In this day, a Roman legion could be comprised of as many as 6,000 soldiers. And the great number of evil spirits that were oppressing these men will become more apparent later on in the account. And so the stage of this confrontation between the demon-possessed men... And Jesus has been set. Jesus Christ has no sooner stepped out of the boat than two men who have been rendered almost beasts with superhuman strength, plagued by a legion of evil spirits, rush up and confront him. But, but what are to be our takeaways from these first couple of verses? First, we need to see and understand that demons are very real. And demon possession is very serious. But I do want to make clear, lest there be any undue concern in anyone's mind, particularly among our younger hearers, that while all believers are targets of Satan and his angel, we read that Satan prowls around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so he does so. He attacks us through his lies and his cunning. However, Christians cannot be possessed by demons or by evil spirits. Followers of Jesus cannot be indwelled by evil spirits. Well, why is that? Well, the house is already occupied. 
We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so demon possession is not something that Christians need to be worried about. Instead, we must be on guard against the more subtle and crafty efforts of Satan to discourage our growth in Christ. As J.C. Ryle has written on this passage, in the days when our Lord was upon earth, it is clear that Satan had a peculiar power over the bodies of certain men and women, as well as over their souls. Even in our own times, there may be more of this bodily possession than some suppose, though confessedly in far less degree than when Christ came in the flesh but that the devil is ever near us in spirit and ever ready to ply our hearts with temptations ought never to be forgotten. He's making clear that, yes, demon possession was something that was more common, particularly when Christ walked the earth. And it makes sense as to why Satan, seeing an opportunity perhaps to try to sideline the Son of God from his mission would be more active than at other times. He also makes the point that bodily possession by demons may be even more common than some suppose. Though not in a believer, demon possession can still take place. So the question maybe in your mind is, why do we not see this more in our culture? Or perhaps the things that we sometimes hear accounts of are more true than what we would like to think. Well, I do have uh, a thought as to why it is that this is not common in our day and in our society. As the Puritan writer said, Satan, like a fisherman, baits his hook according to the appetite of the fish. And in our secular age, perhaps it is far more advantageous for people to ignore the existence of Satan and to ignore this spiritual realm altogether than to draw attention to himself and to the great warfare taking place. But as in Jesus' day, as we see in our passage, we see such warfare being waged out in the open. And one such great battle is recorded in this passage. A second takeaway for us is that we see that the demons know, who exactly, know exactly who Christ is. And they know exactly what his authority is over them, which shapes everything that comes next. Satan's power is limited. And he cannot overcome the strength of God nor thwart any of his designs or plans. So while this passage reveals the awful truth of what Satan can do with a person, it also reveals the awesome truth of what Christ can do with that same person. We must never forget that Satan's power comes to nothing when up against Jesus Christ, which is what we see in the next verses. Let's consider now the eviction. In verses 30 to 33, we see the eviction. Having asked Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? They've, they've spoken to Jesus. The demons, they begin angling for something less than complete and utter defeat, and they notice something. 
Verse 30, now a herd of many pigs. Mark's gospel tells us they were 2,000 pigs. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And now listen to this, verse 31, and the demons begged him. They're already prostrate on the ground, and now the demons begged Christ. You do not beg for something from someone you are more powerful than. We can be quite certain that the demons did not beg the townspeople to remove the shackles and the chains that they put them in. They merely wrenched them apart and shattered them to pieces on their own. You also do not beg before an enemy whom you have a decent shot or any chance of beating. Begging is the last resort of someone who is desperate and defeated. The demons know that they are no match for the power of Christ. And so having laid and fall down before him on the ground, they beg Jesus saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus being in complete sovereign control of every element of this encounter gives the simple command, go. Mark and Luke state that Jesus gave them permission. Jesus is in control of this situation. Then we read, so they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Well, is it okay for all those pigs just to die? What about the farmer's livelihood? Those were their pigs. Were these Gentile-owned pigs, or were these maybe disobedient Jews that owned pigs and they shouldn't have because they were prohibited, they're unclean? Did the demons know that the pigs were going to do? Don't get caught up in the pigs. Don't worry about the pigs. The speculation about the pigs is not the point. Don't miss the forest for the pigs. Even the herdsmen are not focused on the pigs. They told everything, especially, not what happened to the pigs, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. They did not go to the town, tell this story, and get a response of, wait, what was that you said about the pigs? Now that's interesting. Tell me more about the pigs. No, Jesus had just cast out demons. No one had been able to walk on this road for who knows how long because these dangerous, naked, demon-possessed men would harm them. And now they are free from the demons. The fact that the demons were sent into a herd of pigs takes place, I, I feel, to make abundantly clear that there were thousands of demons possessing these men and to therefore demonstrate yet again that Jesus Christ is no mere man of God, but is God in the flesh. He has shown his power over sickness. He has shown his power over nature. And now he has shown his power over demons. And this is not one versus one. This is not one versus two. This is Jesus verse 2,000 demons. And Jesus does not go through some dramatic ritual. 
He does not exert any great effort. He says only one word, go. The demons do not merely get released into the air all around them, but instead are cast into a herd of swine that was, as indicated in the other Gospels and in various translations, quite a long ways off on a hillside. They were not amidst the pigs at this time, but Jesus cast 2,000 demons or more out of these men and into a herd of pigs a great ways off. And so what the herdsmen went and reported the town was that this man, who had just gotten off a boat, had not only talked with these wild men who lived among the tombs and were a threat and a terror to all who passed by, but he delivered them from their condition. And he evicted the many demons that had afflicted them. Yet again, our passage is focused on giving us insight into the tremendous power of Jesus Christ. And as followers of Jesus, even as followers who are familiar with this and and similar passage, we look at these things and we think, wow, that is amazing. We are once again in awe of the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And we must be reminded that for whatever circumstance our minds, our hearts become concerned about the warfare going on in the spiritual realm all around us. We get concerned about Satan and his demons. We get concerned about evil and oppression and all these things. We must be reminded time and again throughout the Gospels that Jesus Christ is far more powerful than demons, just as demons physically are far more powerful than any of us. Jesus Christ is far and away more powerful than any of them altogether combined. So we should be in awe. We should be amazed by this. But this is not everyone's reaction to Jesus. No matter what it is that that we go and we tell people about the wondrous works that Jesus has done, other people read in their Bibles and they see the same things that we see and their response is not one of awe of interest or a desire to follow him. And this is not the reaction that we see in this specific situation. Let's look thirdly at the reaction. What will be the response of those who witness this mighty act? What about those who knew about these demon-possessed men, but they hear about these things secondhand, and they come to see what took place? Verse 34 And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. We'll pause there for a moment. Clearly, this event has generated great interest among the people. They were not indifferent to the report that they heard from the herdsmen. But one and all knew that they had had to come see for themselves the person who was able to accomplish such a mighty act. All the city came out to meet Jesus. Well, we're off to a good start. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. For the second time, we see someone beg something from Jesus. They beg him to leave. They want him gone. And this is a shocking response. And it's the first time that we see Jesus rejected in Matthew's gospel. Why is this? 
Why do they want Jesus to go away from them? Well, you might say perhaps they didn't hear the whole story. They only heard this part about the pigs and they're, they're upset. They need the pigs financially or, or maybe they're just really into animal rights. Well, that idea doesn't hold up because we see from that the herdsmen were especially focused on the demon-possessed men. They heard what happened. They heard the main part of the story. It is not the case that they didn't see the demon-possessed men afterwards and see the dramatic before and the afterward result of what Jesus had done, and so they didn't appreciate it. Mark 5, we read that they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed men, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. So it can't be that they don't appreciate and understand and believe the reality of what just took place. That's not why they asked Jesus to leave. Well, many commentators, many sermons, many study Bibles suggest that what we see here is a love of possessions being put above a love of people. The townspeople are so upset at this financial loss that was to be felt by the loss of the herd of pigs that they're more concerned with that than they are about the formerly demon-possessed men. Well, if this is to be the lesson here, it is rather odd that it is not expressed at all in the text. In any of the Gospels, no Gospel writer, writer makes that point. Besides, the entire town did not own these pigs. This is not a commune, this is not the town's pigs, and nothing is specifically heard from the herdsmen who took care of the pigs or the owners who own them. This does not appear to be about the heart of man being geared towards material possessions. So why do they want Jesus to leave? Well, again, we're helped by the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, and is why I'm so surprised when I read often it being spoken of as if it was the, the issue of finances and possessions. We're told why they want him to leave. Look again at that verse from a moment ago in Mark 5. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Luke 8.37, we read, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. It was not finances that drove their reaction, but fear. They were greatly afraid. Two passages in a row begin and end with fear. The storm in the Sea of Galilee, they were afraid of the storm. Jesus did not calm that storm to calm their fears. He calmed that storm, and they were more afraid. The, the people in the town would not pass by the tombs because they were afraid of the demon-possessed men. Jesus comes, and he rids them of this issue, and they are more afraid, filled with great fear. Well, why is this? Why are they afraid? There are a number of reasons. First, fear is always the response of encountering the living God. As I just mentioned, the disciples in the boat went from being afraid of the storm to greatly afraid when Jesus calmed it because they knew they were in the presence of God. Any time you see someone encounter the living God in Scripture, the response is one of great fear. 
which is why you always see the angels. What is the first thing they say? Do not be afraid. Every interaction, they have to reassure the people to not be afraid when they're in the presence of a heavenly being and much more so when they are in the presence of God himself. No doubt there was a fear of the mighty power that Christ possessed, the power that he had just demonstrated. Yes, they were afraid of these demon-possessed men, but now they are more afraid of the manner in which they were rid of that danger. Imagine if there was a dangerous rabid dog in your neighborhood that was causing problems. You're afraid of that dog. You want that dog gone. And a stranger walked down the sidewalk and obliterates it with a single word. Just evaporates the dog with the word of his mouth. You have gone from being afraid of the dog to being much more afraid of whatever has just taken place by this stranger. You're grateful the dog is no longer a threat, but you're afraid of the awesome power that you have just witnessed. We see also in Scripture a desire for people to have God remove his presence from them, either... Because they recognize that they are unworthy. You think of the prophet Isaiah, depart from me, for I am a man of unclean lips and from among a people of unclean lips. Or because they reject the light. Because they love the darkness and their deeds are evil. There are many reasons, perhaps a little bit of all of these reasons for the townspeople to be afraid. They all factor into their reaction to what has just happened, and they ask Jesus to leave. They beg Jesus to leave, and without an argument, without any recorded word from Jesus or his disciples, he gets in the boat to leave. But before they shove off, there is one more reaction to what has taken place. Again, we turn to Mark's account of this remarkable event, Mark 5, 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged that he might be with him. Once again, someone begs something from Jesus. The men who had been possessed, or, or at least one of the two, comes to Jesus with the desire to follow after him. Although the townspeople saw the truth of what had taken place, they did not experience it. They had not experienced the oppression of the demons, and therefore they did not experience the joy of the deliverance that these men did. And so they did not have the same response. They were grateful. Their gratitude filled them with a desire to follow after Jesus. Yet Jesus does not grant this request as he had the request of the demons and the request of the townspeople. Verses 19 and 20 of Mark 5. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus had different work for these men than to follow him from place to place in his ministry. Instead, they were to remain in their own town, their own cities, their own region, and let the joy of their deliverance drive them to proclaim all that Jesus had done for them. And despite the initial reaction 
of begging Jesus to leave them, we read that those in the Decapolis marveled at what they had heard. They were amazed by it. They were in awe of what Jesus had accomplished. And there is a great lesson here, an application for us. Although our oppression under the power of Satan might not have been so outwardly dramatic as that experienced by these men, we were no less enslaved to sin. We were no less under the power of the evil one until Christ came and freed us. Should not our hearts long to follow after Jesus and to tell everyone we encounter what he has done for us? This is the task that has been given to us in the Great Commission, and this is the task that Jesus gives to these formerly demon-possessed men. So he gives them this task, and then Jesus leaves. We don't know how long the herdsmen took to go to town and bring all the people back. It would seem, from a plain reading of the text, that this entire event did not take very long at all. Think about that. In, in Matthew 8, 18, Jesus gives his disciples orders to get in the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. After encountering the storm, in, in Matthew 8, 28, they arrive at their destination and encounter two demon-possessed men immediately, Mark tells us. Jesus had just stepped out of the boat, and these two demon-possessed men come up. Their conversation is brief. The eviction of the spirits into the swine is immediate. The people return quickly enough to see the men sitting there clothed and in their right minds. And then in Matthew 9, 1, we read, And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Jesus came for this and only this purpose to this side of the Sea of Galilee. This was not a random occurrence. This was not a delay of Jesus' primary business in this area. This is his business in this area. Christ crossed the Sea of Galilee, endured a storm for the sole purpose of encountering these two men, and as soon as he freed them from the demons, he got back in the boat and he left. Their community had been unable to help them. In fact, their solution had been to bind them in shackles and in chains. They were dangerous, naked, dwelling among the dead in tombs, yet Christ goes to great lengths to free them from the oppression of the evil one. That was his entire purpose for this trip. What wondrous love is displayed by the Savior here. And we know that what we see here is but a microcosm of what Christ came to do on this earth. He came to release us of our chains and break the power of sin over us. We read in 1 John 3, 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Just as he went out of his way for the specific purpose of freeing these two men, the very reason that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us was to destroy the works of Satan and free us from sin. In these early chapters of the Gospels, we see that Jesus had already begun to roll back the curse, whether healing the sick or freeing people from demon possession. Christ's victory over Satan and his demons would, of course, come ultimately through his death and resurrection. 
Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus took on flesh so that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 2, we read, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, uh, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is speaking of the, the principalities and the powers of Satan. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus defeated Satan and his demons ultimately on the cross. They have already been defeated. The devil's plans to keep us in subjection have been thwarted. The prince of the power of the air has been put to open shame through Christ's death and his resurrection. And we, inasmuch as we share in Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, share in his ultimate victory over Satan. We are no longer slaves to sin, nor are we at enmity with God any longer. True, we cannot afford to let our guard down until that full and ultimate completion of Christ's victory takes place and Satan is cast into the lake of fire, and we are forever with the Lord. In this life, Satan may still tempt us. He may accuse us. He may spread lies and false doctrine and sow seeds of doubt. He may hinder us in our plans, but he cannot win. As we read in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Christ has already won the victory over Satan. A victory so sure and certain that even before it had taken place, the demons were forced to act in accordance with its reality. They prostrate themselves before Christ. They, they grovel at his feet. They beg. They refer to him as the son of God. They recognize that what he says goes. As the scriptures bear witness to the reality of Satan and his demons, we dare not commit the error of ignoring the spiritual warfare that wages all around us. Instead, we take the warnings of the Bible seriously. We maintain our guard against Satan, and we put on the full armor of God that we may withstand the schemes of the devil. We stand firm, and we resist the devil so that he will flee from us. At the same time, we do not wish to become so fixated on such things, giving into an unhealthy obsession or a fear of the roaring lion who seeks to devour us. Instead, we recognize what Christ has done. We give thanks that we do not fight for victory. We fight from a victory, which has already been won for us by Jesus Christ. So stay alert, Christian. Remain ever vigilant, ever hopeful, and ever ready to proclaim to others what our Lord has done for you. And may they marvel when they hear it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the record of these things. That you have preserved for us an account of the marvelous and miraculous works that Jesus Christ did as he walked this earth. We thank you for the character of our Lord that he would 
love so greatly that he would seek to deliver people from their sickness, from oppression. We thank you for the love that he displayed, that he came, took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life for us. He died an atoning death that we might be forgiven of our sins. More than that, he resurrected three days later to show and declare his victory over sin and over Satan. We thank you for the remarkable, amazing grace that is ours, that we get to share in that victory, that we, by faith in him and what he has done for us, can be freed from our oppression, that he will release us from our chains, that we can follow after him, no longer to be enslaved and ensnared by the devil, but rather to be followers of Jesus Christ forever with the Lord. We thank you for these truths. Ask that you would press the lessons that this passage has deeply in our hearts, that we would be in awe and overjoyed at what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we would seek to make that known to others. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.